Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thank you for joining us to lead, learn, and lab. Learn market knowledge and best practices to lead your company's success. And that's whatever type of company you work with and laugh, I believe we have to have some fun along the way. Well, hello, I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. Well, today we'll share interviews with you from the fourth annual Ackerman U.S. Real Estate Summit. Nearly 300 of the top real estate executives gathered at the Ackerman U.S. Real Estate Summit recently in Miami, Florida. The summit explored the latest trends impacting investment in commercial real estate in the U.S., Experts address the challenges still affecting the industry, the state of the global markets, and opportunities presenting value for investors at this point in the cycle. We will start with discussions related to the hospitality industry, including resorts, condo hotels, and the recent Eden Rock decision affecting long-term management contracts. Michael Bull here. I'm here with Andy Robbins, shareholder, chair, lodging and lifestyle practice with Ackerman. Uh, Robbins has over 20 years of experience advising owners, operators, and developers of hotels, resorts, and mixed-use developments throughout the U.S. and around the world. Andy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Well, Andy, there's a, a recent uh, court decision called the Eden Rock decision. What does that decision uh, mean for long-term management contracts in the hotel industry? Eden Rock is essentially the case of the year. There have been a series of cases over the last several years, uh, probably precipitated by the downturn in the hospitality sector, in which the notion that was well accepted uh, previously, which is that an owner of a hotel can always terminate a long-term management contract, the downside being that it subjects itself to a damages claim which can be very substantial and is essentially based on the remaining, the unexpired term of the management agreement. There were some cases um, in which brands were able to enjoin, uh, i.e. prevent, an owner from actually terminating them and expelling them from the property. That placed in doubt the viability of this, it's referred to as an agency concept, and the notion of an agency relationship is the owner can always terminate the, the, uh, the agent, the, the operator. Well, Eden Rock uh, has actually restored the notion of agency and the owner's right to terminate a management company. And that's a, a pretty big deal, isn't it, Andy, for the folks who may not be in the hospitality industry. How long are these uh, contracts typically uh, to manage a hotel? So you're an investor and you own the hotel. You turn it completely over to this management company for them to do what they will with. And how long are those contracts typically? Yeah. So, so turning over completely is sort of the key to all of this. What you do as an owner, and this is a very foreign concept to people who have not been in the hospitality sector, you basically build a product for the brand in accordance with their standards. You fund all of that yourselves, as one would expect. You fund all of the operating shortfalls, and you do go through a budgetary process on an annual basis, but um, disagreements on the budget are subject to arbitration or expert resolution. So an owner truly is turning over the keys. These agreements in the luxury segment would tend to be in the 20-plus years range, but the stronger the brand is, and let's just use Four Seasons as the most obvious example, the longer the term will be, and so Four Seasons will tell you that all of their agreements are 80 years, wow. a huge amount of time for any owner. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, uh, you do a lot of work in the uh, resort area, and you have a lot of clients with resort properties. Andy, uh, what are you seeing their performance? Uh, how are these properties and are these clients doing uh, these days? All of the craziness of the residential sector found itself in the hospitality sector before the crash. 
And so what you found is a, a resort development was easy to get off of the ground because you just compiled the hotel with a, with a fair complement of condominiums or townhomes or villas. Those sold, they filled in the capital structure so the resort developer could go forward. That all fell apart completely during the downturn because people lost interest, um, totally lost interest in any of this for sale real estate product. To the extent that the properties got built and are operating, they are doing better. Rev par and occupancy has improved. Of course, it's all dependent on the particulars of market and submarket, but it's clearly doing better. It, it however, has not really changed um, the negative circumstances for the resort development community because there really has not been much of a return, although you're beginning to hear people talk about perhaps some increased willingness to buy vacation-oriented real estate. But all in all, for, for example, if you look at the Caribbean, you know, you're just not seeing a lot of real estate sales at this point. And that may be a couple of years in the making. And the capital structure for a resort is such that you're probably not going to see resort development uh, take off in any meaningful way until there is an ability to sell real estate. And I guess it looks like we may be seeing that soon. At least the, uh, the primary residents are starting to pick up in uh, most markets. So interesting to see if the secondary homes uh, pick up sales. And another concept uh, sort of related to that is, is condo hotels where uh, individuals can buy a, uh, a hotel room, if you will, and put it into a rental pool. Uh, what do you see with that business and, and, and where is it headed? There is sort of a lack of understanding about what people refer to as a condominium hotel. The, the central notion of condominium hotels, and this was a concept that took off essentially after 9-11. There was a lack of capital and there was really no way to do traditional hotels for a period of years. And yet there were a bunch of developers who had sites and wanted to move forward and they were able to do it under a condominiumized model and there was some question as to whether the zoning allowed a hotel or allowed residential. And all of that led to some opportunities. The problem with condo hotels is that uh, prior to 2000, the brands were not in the game and they had two concerns. One was the ability to control the guest experience within a hotel that was essentially owned by all of the different individual purchasers of hotel rooms. And the second was a lack of certainty as to the room's inventory because issues associated with our securities laws prevented developers from essentially requiring participation in the rental program. Through some creative structuring, we kind of got past that issue. The brands all came into the condo hotel business in the early part of the last decade. And after a series of um, openings and discovering how difficult it might be to deal with unit owners, they all realized that this was perhaps too complicated of a product. So the condo hotel concept, to the extent that it means all of the rooms in the hotel are sold to third parties, is essentially dead in the United States. It's very much alive in places like Brazil, where it's the primary form of, of hotel development. However, what's still very much alive is you do not see a luxury hotel or resort product that has no complement of for sale units, as I alluded to. And so what happens with those units is exactly the same as what happened with these quote-unquote condo hotels. The only difference is there are many traditional hotel rooms in each of these products that the brands totally control and that the single owner has title to. So that what happens with the small complement of, of what are referred to as whole ownership rental program units, because the buyer is buying whole ownership as opposed to timeshare, and it's all going back into a rental program. In the instance in which there are 20 to 40 of those units, 
in, in connection with a 200-room hotel, it's not so important what happens to those units. And so that model is still alive and well, and for that reason, we still spend a lot of time advising developers on how you develop those units, how you sell them without uh, violating the securities laws, and some of the nuances of operating them, which is a bit more of an art than a science. And Andy, you mentioned timeshare there. In places like, uh, I guess, Florida's had a lot of timeshare uh, product. Uh, where's the timeshare business, and what's the future of uh, timeshare business? You need to look at um, the concept of shared ownership as a series of products, timeshare being one, and timeshare being a product that is usually sold for a one-week or two-week interval during the year tends to be uh, a less expensive unit, and it's not tailored to the buyer's needs. And then distinguish that from fractional ownership and private residence clubs. And these products are a spectrum. And as you get from timeshare on the one hand to private residence clubs, you're buying a unit that is more, um, more characteristic of a second home. I want to, instead of buying the whole second home, I buy one month or two months or perhaps more in this private residence club. When I'm coming, someone puts pictures of my family on the mantle, and it, it feels a lot like a, a second home substitute. Now, the fractional and private residence club business has been terrible since the downturn, and it hasn't come back, although I think some would tell you that it is beginning to come back. And the interesting question about this is the second home, you know, resort community, second home market is really dead. It's, it's, it's in very bad shape. And the question is, Will American purchasers ever want to buy those homes again? And obviously some will, but it may not reach the numbers. The question is, will somebody who wants that second home look at fractional and private residence club as an alternative? It is a more logical alternative because most of these people don't use their second home more than, say, people say 27, 28, 9 days a year. So the fate of fractional and private residence clubs is going to turn on the appetite of buyers of these products, but they're still very slow. Timeshare, on the other hand, is much more of a middle market product, and timeshare is selling. It took a bit of a hit during the downturn, but it's really very much alive and well. Well, Andy, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Uh, Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, after a quick break, we'll talk with Tom Sintema with CNL Financial Group about what they see in the market. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. You may be listening to the show anywhere from Orlando to San Francisco today. The show has been broadcast around the world for two and a half years on iTunes, multiple websites, and is aired on 10 radio stations across the U.S. We'd like to say hello to our listeners in Dallas listening on AM 1160, KVCE, Dallas-Fort Worth Business Authority. Well, the Commercial Real Estate Show covers events like the Ackerman U.S. Real Estate Summit. Next week, we'll feature interviews from ICSC Recon 13 Conference in Las Vegas. If you have a major commercial real estate event you'd like us to cover, you can find our contact information at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, now we have some more interviews from the U.S. Ackerman Real Estate Summit. Now we'll feature an interview where we touch on entertainment and park properties. 
Hi, Michael Bull here at the Ackerman U.S. Real Estate Summit in Miami, and I have the opportunity to sit and talk with Tom Sitema, Chief Executive Officer with CNL Financial Group. CNL is a leading private investment firm that provides global real estate and alternative investments. They're headquartered in Orlando, Florida, and since their inception over 38 years ago, CNL has owned or managed more than $25 billion in real estate assets. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Michael, and I'm pleased to be here with you. Well, thank you. And can you start us out and tell us a little bit about the depth and the various property types that CNL is involved in around the U.S.? Absolutely. CNL, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary year this year. It's a private company founded by Jim Seneff in 1973 in Orlando, Florida. We are principally a investment management firm focusing on real estate and alternatives, and we have a real estate services business as well. Today we have about $6 billion in assets under management and our assets span a variety of sectors. Our most active sector is the healthcare sector where we own assisted living and senior housing assets and some medical office buildings. But we also have some what we call lifestyle sectors where we own a significant portfolio of ski resorts, water parks, gated attractions, marinas, golf courses, and that sort of thing. And then we also have uh, traditional real estate investments in multifamily and office uh, and retail as, as well. Okay. Well, I like the sound of those fun properties, right? Uh, <laughs> let's go skiing and, and go to the marinas. Where, what sectors are you guys focused on right now, and, and what's the future of the firm? Where do you, where do you look, guys looking to grow the most moving forward uh, where we are at this point in the cycle? We have been very active in acquiring real estate the last three years. We've acquired about $800 million of real estate the last uh, two years. We'll do a little bit more than that this year. The principal sectors that we are bullish on and investing in uh, leads with healthcare, where we have been uh, very active in uh, investing in the healthcare sector. The fundamentals in that space are very compelling. Uh, I say the wind is sort of in our sails to some extent with the demographic uh, trends in our company. We also are investing in our lifestyle-themed uh, asset classes. We're, we, uh, we love the ski business, very hard to scale uh, that business, uh, but we clearly are investing there. And then lastly, we're investing uh, aggressively in multifamily, but primarily in multifamily development. We are not acquiring stabilized multifamily uh, as the pricing has got it, gotten uh, pretty full there. So we would rather deliver new product uh, into markets that need that product uh, and benefit from the development uh, opportunities there. Yeah, it's nice to see that uh, the multifamily market is has improved so much that we can uh, build a new uh, new product out there, right? Well, uh, how about the rest of uh, your portfolio? What kind of performance have you seen uh, through the recession and through today, especially in the resort-type properties and the ski resorts? Are more people getting out and uh, spending money now? The the ski business is a fascinating business, and uh, we've seen very, very strong years the last couple of years uh, in, in, in ski in terms of skier attendance. Clearly, the recession hit everybody, and so consequently, the consumer spent less, and so the per skier spend uh, has come down, although we're clearly seeing that climb uh, back up again. 
The challenge we had a year ago uh, was not related to the recession, it was related to the weather, and we had uh, essentially what we called a 100-year flood in the ski business where the snowfall was quite uh, low in many markets. That tr trend reversed dramatically this year. We own 17 ski resorts, and I think as of today, 13 or 14 of them are still open and operating. Additionally, we've invested extensively in snowmaking equipment, which actually helped us uh, last year because we were able to uh, to sort of gain market share relative to the industry by virtue of that. But so the ski business uh, is very, very strong. We're actually seeing positive trends in every one of our sectors. Uh, the toughest sector for us has been golf because the, the player rounds uh, went down pretty significantly and there was an oversupply of golf courses uh, primarily because so many golf courses were built to sell residential lots and homes. Uh, when that sort of slowed uh, down, now we're seeing pretty significant EBITDA growth uh, in our golf business uh, as, as well. So each of the sectors uh, have, have been improving, uh, consistent with the overall improvement in the economy. Well, that's good news and good to hear. Well, what about your healthcare properties? Uh, what type of properties are you going to focus on moving forward? And what do you expect to see in the healthcare industry with Obamacare and all the changes uh, moving forward there? Uh, what kind of performance do you expect? Well, I, to answer your last question first, I, I wish I knew sort of the changes in, in the uh, industry as a result of o Obamacare. Our strategy in healthcare uh, has been. Uh, fairly consistent over the last three years in particular, uh, and that's investing in uh, high quality real estate, relatively newer uh, properties, generally private pay, so we're staying a little bit clear of the Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement risk, uh, which will get uh, more confusing and complicated in Obamacare. Uh, we tend to stay with strong regional operators, so we own the real estate partnering with operators that we think are best in class. We tend uh, to acquire properties in secondary uh, markets, so we're not sort of competing with all the big guys, if you will, buying in, in uh, downtown Washington, D.C. or Boston or New York. We tend to focus uh, across the country in secondary and maybe even tertiary markets with strong operators, uh, strong market uh, potential, uh, and again, private pay. Okay, Tom, uh, what might surprise people about CNL? Well, Michael, we're celebrating, as I mentioned earlier, our 40th anniversary, and we, uh, through that 40 years, have seen many up cycles and down cycles. Maybe the most uh, surprising aspect of, of CNL is through our real estate investment strategies, we had built a real estate fund that invested in net lease restaurants. That was about $3 billion. We invested uh, in a fund that inv uh, bought hotels, that was $6.5 billion, and a healthcare-related REIT, that was about $5.5 billion. And we liquidated all three of those uh, REITs, aggregating $15 billion between October of 2006 and April of 2007. So we, uh, as we say, we punched out $15 billion of real estate just prior to the, the crash, and we, over the last few years, have been uh, investing much more significantly to rebuild those assets under management. Well, that's a good timing to sell. That explains the nice suit, right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, Tom, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your time.
Thank you, Michael. Pleased to be here. Well, stay tuned for Anna Marie DeCola with TREP. We'll talk about the CMBS loan markets at this point in the cycle. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Does your company provide professional services to the commercial real estate industry? The Commercial Real Estate Show is an excellent way to reach your target audience. For advertising options, visit commercialrealestateshow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. If you appreciate the show, pay it forward. Reach out to the show's sponsors to see how they may benefit your business or someone you know. Just look for the tab, Show Sponsors, at CommercialRealEstateShow.com. While at the site, you're also invited to check out the blogs, videos, and the professional directory. Well, today, we're featuring interviews from the U.S. Ackerman Real Estate Summit. Now we'll speak to Anna-Marie DeCola with TREP. Okay, Michael Bull here. I'm at the Ackerman U.S. Real Estate Summit in Miami. I have the uh, fortunate opportunity to talk to Anne-Marie DeCola, CEO with TREP, a private analytics company based in New York that tracks the market for commercial real estate financing from commercial mortgage-backed securities to bank lending. Anne-Marie, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you very much, Michael. My pleasure. Well, can you get us started and tell us about what you see for loan performance today around the country? You know, what are delinquency levels? What do you see? Well, uh, as of the end of March, uh, what TREP reported that for commercial mortgage loans in CMBS, the current delinquency rate is 9.5%. Uh, we had hit higher levels during the fiscal crisis, so we are trending in a direction that is good. And uh, we, are, we are pleased to be reporting that this number is under 10%. And how does that compare to, say, the worst delinquency that we had in the marketplace? Well, we had top 10%. We had gone over 10% with commercial mortgage loan delinquencies in yeah. CMBS. And um, given the uh, amount of mortgage loans under the bonds that we track, these loans represent a wonderful proxy for what is happening in commercial real estate in the U.S. So uh, we were very pleased that in February, when we reported the delinquency rate, uh, we, were, we were, saw that the rates were trending downward and we were reporting lower numbers than we had seen in the course of the crisis. Yeah. Uh, well, some investors, or just a few, I guess, that we talked to, uh, suggest that they're holding out some uh, equity for maturities coming up in, in 15 and 16 and 17. What are the level of CMBS maturities that, that will be coming up then, and how do you expect uh, that those may shake out? Well, that's a, that's a very, very key thing for people to keep an eye on because when we look at 15, 16, and 17, our numbers tell us that across those three years, we're looking at upwards of $350 billion in loans in CMBS that are going to need to be refinanced. Uh, certainly, uh, the question as to whether all of those will easily find refinancing at the time is, is, is potential opportunity for investors to, to look at, whether it's to uh, view the possibility of being that refinancing arm for those loans or whether it's to see if some of those loans actually present distressed opportunities for them. You also track banks. So what do you think about the health of banks today? 
Uh, we've been reporting on a number of banks uh, that we, uh, we urge our clients to keep an eye on because it's very important to look at the level of various banks' uh, CRE exposures. Uh, very frequently, we have found in our forecasting of bank financial sustainability, the CRE exposure of the bank is very frequently one of the biggest factors in whether a bank will succeed or fail. So it's a very important metric for people to keep looking at and to focus on. And as you've been looking at that information, uh, how, how do you feel? Are the banks uh, becoming more healthy now in this recovery? And uh, you know, not, not that not everybody knows what the big banks are doing, their, mm -hmm. their quarterly reports are coming out, but mm -hmm. what about these mid-sized banks that uh, commercial real estate relies so heavily on? Right. Uh, we think that uh, the majority of them are strong and healthy, uh, but what we are also doing is helping them perform stress tests on their banks to really zero in on the pieces of their holdings things that uh, are, are most troubling. And of course, our focus with them is the CRE exposure. So we do believe that while the majority are healthy, there are a number that need to readjust their holdings and likely sell off some of their CRE exposures. And talk to us about uh, your, your new venture with ICSC and uh, what you're doing there on, on retail property performance levels. Uh, what do you have uh, headed our way there? Uh, we're very, very excited about uh, a new alliance that we formed with the ICSC. Uh, the ICSC uh, is going to uh, reinstitute its dollars and cents survey that it would always annually hold uh, with its member companies, where member companies would report on various operating expense detail, and where ICSC would give back to the market aggregate level statistics so that property owners of retail uh, could really benchmark their own expense performance and operational performance against their peers. Um, we are uh, opening up a survey, only now it's all going to be done electronically, it's all going to be reported electronically, and we are going to be taking uh, a week from uh, uh, this conference, we're going to open up an ICSC survey where members are going to start giving us that data, and then TREP is going to uh, review and analyze all the data and feed back to the market and to the ICS, ICSC members uh, benchmark statistics on operation levels of retail centers around the country. Well, Anne-Marie, thanks for joining us today. We sure appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Michael. My pleasure. Well, stay with us. In a moment, we'll talk to Daryl Parmenter with Parmenter Realty Partners about the office market. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404 832 8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate related topics, check out our on demand show podcast. For example, we check out a show we did on apps called There's an App for That. You can access shows anytime on your smartphone or computer. Visit iTunes or the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're featuring interviews from the U.S. Ackerman Real Estate Summit. Next, we'll talk to Daryl Parmenter about the office market. Hello, Michael Bull here. I'm at the Ackerman U.S. Real Estate Summit in Miami, Florida. I had the privilege to speak with Daryl Parmenter. He is chairman and chief executive officer of Parmenter Realty Partners. 
uses his 35 years of experience to direct the acquisition, development, and management operations of Parmenter Realty Partners. Mr. Parmenter formed Parmenter Realty Partners in 1989, and capitalizing on his expertise has been integral to the firm since its founding. And uh, Daryl, uh, welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thank you. Well, I'd like to get started with, you know, you guys have uh, a lot of office properties around the country, and uh, the office market has been uh, showing some improvement. Uh, what do you see with your portfolio, and uh, what do you expect to see moving forward? The real estate market continues to be volatile. office sector is somewhat less volatile than some other sectors. Uh, but in terms of the recovery, we're seeing market by market, even sub-market by sub-market, uh, specific recovery. For example, Houston, in which we're heavily invested, is perhaps the first or second best office market in the country, where we're seeing double-digit rental growths on an annual basis. Atlanta and Dallas, we're seeing less so, although we think that Atlanta and, uh, and Dallas will both be major growth cities in the next year or two. And uh, are you guys in the acquisition mode? And if you are, uh, what, what areas, what cities, and what types of properties are you looking to acquire? Yeah, we are most definitely in the acquisition mode. We are in a sector called value-add. So we're in the middle of our fourth fund right now. Our funds are made up of institutional investors, predominantly major university endowments and foundations. And we've invested a little over half of that fund. So we would hope to have invested all of that uh, in the next nine months to 12 months and be into our fifth fund. Uh, we think it's a very good time to buy real estate. It's, uh, we're able to buy real estate at material discounts to replacement cost. And that's important in an evolving market where new buildings will be rented at, at substantially higher rents. And, uh, you know, employment is a big part of the office market, obviously. And, and what do you think about the reporting on unemployment, uh, how, they, how they do it? And, and what types of opportunities do you see with the slow job growth uh, that we're experiencing? Well, in certain cities, certain markets, certain sub-markets, it certainly caused a continuing delay in lease-up. On the other hand, there was the, the downturn in this market was driven not so much by oversupply, but pure market, economic market conditions. So as we start to come out of it, we don't have an oversupply of office space. We think it'll start to lease up rather quickly as the recovery continues. Uh, we rely heavily on Moody'sEconomy.com predictions on office employment growth. So we take the Moody statistics and convert them to demand for office space, and we can do that market by market. It gives us a pretty good predictor of what markets are going to show leasing activity and to what extent they're going to show leasing activity. Uh, what do you see related to the size of the offices and the amount of people they're putting in them with your tenants around the country? Our tenants have not changed uh, significantly, whereas 10 years ago, the average square footage per employee was about 350 square feet. The average per employee across all sectors of office space in the United States today is probably less than 200 square feet per employee. In our buildings, we are at about 300 square feet. What's changed and what's disrupted the office market is space efficiency. So even though for example, our tenants have stayed pretty stable in terms of the amount of space they need. 
the way they use their space has changed. So in order to make changes uh, most often, and we're the beneficiary as well as the loser in some cases, uh, they move either within the building or to another building because they don't want their business disrupted in creating the new efficient space of this century. And so they're having to do that because they're making significant changes in the space. So are they doing less uh, corner large offices on glass and, and doing more open space? So what do you see? Yes, they are. I mean, the classic is the law firm that uh, where they're no longer partners offices in the corner. There's no law library. It's all on. It's all computerized. Uh, and there are no large partner offices, period. So we're seeing that, we're seeing it in, in law firms, we're seeing it in uh, accounting firms in a very significant way where tenants are reutilizing space, they're, they're uh, using space that, um, that was very different than they did 10 years ago. Uh, when a employee is out of the office, someone else is sitting in their desk. And we think that's a trend that will continue, although we think there may be a counter trend. We think uh, I'm very involved in a, in, a, uh, in a group called the Urban Land Institute where we spend a great deal of time studying uh, space need trends and so on. And we think there may be a counter trend where employees want some privacy. They don't want to be in a bullpen. And we think there may be a reversal at some point to that trend. Well, Daryl Parmenter, thanks for taking some time out of the uh, convention today and joining us. We appreciate uh, your insight. Thank you very much. Good being here. We'll stay with us. In a moment, we'll have an interview with Richard Bezold, Eckerman Real Estate Practice Group Chair, and we'll talk about the summit here and where he sees opportunities in the commercial real estate market. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Does your company provide professional services to the commercial real estate industry? The Commercial Real Estate Show is an excellent way to reach your target audience. For advertising options, visit CommercialRealEstateShow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. More from the Ackerman U.S. Real Estate Summit. Well, my next guest is Richard Bezold. He is the Ackerman Real Estate Practice Group Chair. He has more than 25 years of experience representing clients in the acquisition, development, and financing of all types of commercial real estate properties. And uh, Richard, great event today, uh, this fourth annual Ackerman U.S. Real Estate Summit. Tell us how the summit has, is so well attended by industry leaders. Well, Michael, thank you, and, and thank you for having me on your show. Um, we started this summit four years ago at the height of the recession because many of our clients were having great difficulty with their real estate. Um, tenants were blowing out. They were losing properties. Uh, they were having foreclosure problems and bankruptcies and things like that. And we said, let's do something for our clients to bring them together and let them have a dialogue and talk about what is working or what they might be able to do in the marketplace. And it has just progressed over the last four years and has become very well attended. We try to invite the business people within our client base. Uh, it's not really aimed at our you know, in-house counsel and things along those lines. It's aimed at the business people, the ones that are actually trying to get deals done. Let's talk about the uh, type of work you guys are seeing in the marketplace. What is your group seeing for the type of commercial real estate work you're, you're doing these days? Is there less distress and more development? What do you see? 
Well, we are seeing less distress. Um, during the recession, a lot of us had to change over from doing deals to doing workouts and foreclosures. Now we're back to seeing a lot more deals. Um, clearly, the emphasis in the last 18 months has been on core product, and that's been trading really well. A core, if a core product comes online, you're seeing 10, 15, 20 bidders for it. Um, outside of the core assets, you're not seeing those bidders yet. You're not seeing the money there to support you know, the loans and the equity for those either. So we are seeing um, a lot of offices trade. We're seeing a lot of shopping centers in key urban areas. The, the Greenfield shopping centers are still having a great deal of problems. Multifamily obviously is, is very hot. The medical office buildings never really slowed and they've continued to, to remain top. The single family developers are back and they're buying up land either to hold an inventory or they're starting to actively develop that land for single family homes. Well, that's certainly a good sign for the economy. Well, Richard, where do you see opportunities in the commercial real estate market right now? You know, if you go back to the core assets, the large office buildings and the big urban centers, um, if they haven't traded already, if they trade, there's a lot of competition there. So that's a tough one for people looking for true value and looking for yield. Um, most of our clients that are looking for that increased yield are now sliding back into maybe the the office buildings, the good A office buildings, but in smaller markets, um, the B pieces, um, and the repositioning of some of the assets that had problems with their tenants over the years. So whether that's industrial facilities or the retail facilities uh, outside of the core areas, we see more of that happening now. And Richard, what about financing? Are your clients finding that they're able to get the financing they need and that the covenants and things these lenders are requesting is fair? What do you see? There is a challenge on financing, and there's really two pieces to financing. Because the loan-to-value ratios have dropped from the 80s and the 90 percents down to the 50s and 60s in many cases, um, a lot of our clients really don't have that 40 or 50 percent to come to the table with. So the first thing they have to do is they have to get additional equity. Um, and we are finding there's a lot of equity out there. There's a lot of people that are looking at the yields from government bonds and other types of investments, and they're realizing that they may have a better return in real estate. So we see a lot of players coming in willing to be joint venture partners with some of our developers and our investors to bring in that extra 30% that might be needed or 40% of the equity. And then they're able to go out to the debt markets and pick up the 50 or 60% that they need. The, the lenders are a lot more cautious than they've been in the past, and the, the product really has to pencil out for them. Uh, the diligence is much stricter than it had been in 2005, 6, and 7. If it's a good product, they can get financing. If it's got problems with it, they're going to have to work hard to convince a lender to go ahead and give them that loan. Richard, thank you for your interview today, and thank you for putting on such a great event. Well, thank you, Michael, and uh, good luck with your show. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interviews from the U.S. Ackerman Real Estate Summit, and I have an invitation for you next week. Join us for interviews from ICSC Recon Conference in Las Vegas. Well, thank you for joining us today. I'm Michael Bull. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is made available by professionals at Cone Resnick, BB&T, France Media, and Bull Realty. For more information about these companies or to access additional show podcasts or videos, visit commercialrealestateshow.com.